Thank you, Randy. Well, good morning, friends. Good to see you. Here we are in Advent. We're moving uh, for the next four weeks. We're moving towards Christmas. But we're doing so uh, with an intentionality of being marked as a people of joy. So what we're going to do for the next several weeks is just be looking at different characters that I think can um, help us cultivate joy, move deeper into a kind of joy that resonates deep inside of the soul. So this week we're going to be looking at an Old Testament story. Uh, we're going to be looking at Joseph and Mary. Stephen Wysong is going to be bringing a word in a couple of weeks. So there's joy all wrapped up in one person. <laughs> yes. So you get to experience, not only get to experience hearing about joy, but actually watching it set on fire from the stage. Uh, so this morning, what I would like to do is just invite you to open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 21. There are Bibles in front of you. If you're not sure where the book of Genesis is, it's the first book in the Old Testament. It's kind of the beginning of the story. And so if you open up just kind of in the beginning stages of that book right there, chapter 21, we're going to be looking at a story. So I want to give you a few moments uh, to turn over to chapter 21. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. This morning, we're going to be talking about laughter. We're going to be looking at different uh, kinds of laughter. Uh, what, uh, what kinds of laughter do we see in the story? And what kinds of laughter actually take us deeper into a joyful response? All right, you ready? You good? good. Okay, thank you, Jane. Genesis 21, here it is, the beginning. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah... As he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse a child, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. If you want to follow along this morning, there are sermon notes at the end of the the aisle, and then on the back of the sermon notes are several scripture passages that we will be looking at this morning. I wanted you to be able to have those in front of you as opposed to trying to navigate through the book, the scriptures this morning. So I want you to look at Genesis chapter 21, verse 6. This is kind of the jumping point, the text that we're looking at this morning. It says that Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh, has made laughter. God has created laughter in me. And I'm struck immediately by God's initiation. God's always making the first move towards humanity. Sometimes we have this expectation that God wants us to make the first move. But what I see throughout thematically in the scripture is that God makes the first move. So God has brought laughter. God has made laughter for me. And all who hear about this story will laugh with me. Not at me, not around me, but with me. So there's a, a laughter with that's caused as a response of this particular story. But let's back up in the story just a bit to give us some context. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, God had come to Abraham and had made a commitment to Abraham and that said, through your 
seed, Abraham, I'm going to um, redeem the entire cosmos. History itself, all people, all creation is going to be redeemed through a promised son. And it's going to happen through you. All the nations, all the people of the world are going to be blessed through your life, through your family line. But there's a problem in the story. His wife, Sarah, is barren. She's not able to bore children. So how is this going to happen? This seems to be another theme throughout Scripture and kind of the bigger, larger arc of the biblical story is how God comes to a woman who's barren and then does something redemptive through her life by bringing her a child, a promise, a commitment. Now, you would think that if God were to come and say that through your family line, even through this barren woman, I'm going to bring a promised child, that if God had done this in her 30s or even her 40s, that would have been miraculous and cause for rejoicing, but it probably wouldn't have captured our attention or our imagination. But the fact of how God did this is what grabs and causes laughter in the story. So if God had come to her while she was young and brought her a child, fine. However, there is this thing called time, and we are very limited. We are living within this boundary of this time continuum. And when certain things don't happen in certain decades of life, we become even more aware of the reality that we're caught in time. So in our 30s, our culture has expectations. There's certain things that are supposed to happen in our 30s. And then when you're in your 40s, there are certain things that are supposed to happen in your 40s and the 50s and 60s and so on. All of these cultural expectations. So by this time, you're supposed to be married. You're supposed to have a couple of kids, a white pick a fence, and a Subaru. That's how it works. You, you go along the sequence of how things are supposed to unravel in your own particular story. But what happens so often in life is that we're met with these things called disappointments. And things don't always go the way that we had anticipated them going. And so we're met with disappointments. And we're realizing as we're met with disappointments that we're not quite measuring up to expectations that are placed upon us in our culture or our family has these standards that we're supposed to hit. And then we also have cultural expectations that we place on ourselves. So much of life is met with disappointment because we're caught in time and we're not quite sure how this is going to unravel and roll out in the world. Now, Abraham hits the age of 100, and God comes to him and continues to make this promise that through your family line, I'm going to bless the entire world. And check out the man of faith, his response to God. If you look on the back of your sheet, Genesis 17, 17, it said that Abraham fell face down. He laughed, and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? So Abraham begins to laugh at the promise of God. And I look at this laughter and I think, oh my, what is going on in the story? And there's particular kinds of laughter that Abraham does, but there's also particular kinds of laughter that we'll see in Sarah. And then the end of the story is God will cause laughter in me. He made laughter for me and all who hear it will rejoice. But if you look at Abraham's laughter, I would call this possibly the laughter of sarcasm. The laughter of, of sarcasm. The first observation in the story, again, is God keeps coming to Abraham and pursuing Abraham, even at 100. He's pursuing. He's, he's not giving up on the promise, the commitment that he's made. But then Abraham's response is to laugh to God's promise. Sarah overhears this conversation going on, and check out Sarah's response in chapter 18, verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, 
After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And she's laughing. Now, this is what I would call a scoffing kind of laughing that might lead more towards a, a cynical approach. And cynicism has a way of seeping into the human condition and into the heart, especially when it comes to, can we really trust God to follow through on his commitment and promise to us? So we see the laughter of sarcasm. We see the laughter of cynicism. And all of these flickers of doubt start to spring up inside of these two main characters, and they pull back because if we trust God too much, then we might get hurt. So we close ourselves off, cynicism starts to slide in, or sarcasm and scoffing begins to come part of our story. And the reason why I think we do that, that self-protection or that pulling back from trusting too much is that we're afraid to hope. Because if we hope too much, I don't want to be a sucker and hope too much because then it just leads to disappointment. So I'll hope to a certain degree, but I don't want to give everything over because that makes me vulnerable, and I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to lose control, so we're afraid to hope. And I think Abraham and Sarah are a lot like us. We're afraid to invest, to, to kind of give ourselves over too much because of the disappointment that could come if we hope in the promises of God too deeply. And to be honest, the, the human heart can only handle so much disappointment in life before it turns into more of a cynical heart, a sarcastic kind of scoffing laughter rises up inside of us. So what we see in this first kind of laughter is a laughter of sarcasm and a laughter of scoffing. And that causes me to ask the question, have we lost the wonder? Have we lost our ability to hope too deeply? And are we afraid of hoping too deeply because we will only be met with disappointment? Now, there's a second kind of laughter that's going on in the story, and I would call this the laughter of anger, how laughter turns to anger very quickly, and how that anger is actually a manifestation of fixation and addiction. So the laughter of fixation and addiction, where does that come from? Actually, this uh, beauty, God comes, fulfills the promise in spite of all the laughter going on, all the unbelief, God still holds up God's end of the deal. And in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 10, look at what it says. The child, this is the promised child, Isaac, grew and was weaned. And on the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. So there's got to be lots of laughter, lots of celebration going on in this great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now, this is quite a strange response. And I think what, if you back up a bit, Abraham and Sarah had decided to jumpstart God's plan process. He, he wasn't quite coming through in a practical sense, so they jump-started the plan. Can any of you identify with that? Like maybe not, God just needs a little help, and we'll just kind of jump-start it and kind of go our own way. And so they decided, they concocted a plan that uh, Abraham would lie with a maidservant and that that maidservant would bear him the son of promise. But the problem is, is that wasn't the son that God had promised. So into the world comes Ishmael, and Ishmael... That, that's a whole nother sermon because it creates a whole set of problems that are still happening in history today. 
But because they've jump-started God's plan and took over, it created all sorts of problems. They couldn't wait any longer. So now we've got two children. You think one child is problematic, throw two into the mix, and it makes it more complex. Now, Sarah, if you think about who is she going to show more favor to, to the son of promise, and it's revealed right here in verse 9. It says that Ishmael was making fun of Isaac. He was laughing at him. And Sarah went aggro on Hagar. She lost her mind. Have you seen this in a parent? Like when you touch the precious child, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, don't, don't do that. She goes aggro on Hagar and basically told Abraham to drop the hammer, throw him out, get rid of him, and, and send that child out. Throw them out, cast them away. Have you ever stepped back and said, well, what the heck is going on in this story? Why this response? What's going on here? Abraham and Sarah throw in a party for their precious son, Isaac, to celebrate the fact that he had been weaned off of his mother's milk. There's lots of rejoicing, lots of laughter, lots of, of joy happening around, but then something changed as Ishmael was making fun of her precious son, and all of a sudden, all of that laughter turned to anger, and it became an affixation and an addiction, and it reveals what's going on inside of the human heart. Have you ever wondered why sometimes laughter can turn to anger so quickly? How laughter can turn into rage in, in a few seconds? And I think what's going on here is, is Isaac had become the center of Abraham and Sarah's life. Now, as a parent, I understand that. I understand that my children are kind of like, they're in there. They're in there deep, right? When you had your first child, I remember the feeling of my heart got taken out of my chest and I just handed it to my child and said, here you go, it's yours. I don't, I don't know what to do with it anymore. It belongs to you. But what happens when the child becomes like the center of your being, the center of your universe, that everything kind of hinges upon the success or the well-being of this child? So Abraham and Sarah are looking at the promised son, the one that was given to them, and they're starting to sink their hope into this child. That child, that gift, became the object of their affection. And we begin to see that once the child or the gift becomes the object of, of affection, it can quickly turn into fixation and addiction. Because if everything centers on this one thing, the outcome of this thing, this precious thing, determines the outcome of our joy. And if anything happens to that precious thing that you build your life on, you will lose it. And it can quickly turn into anger, fixation, addiction. We rejoice when things are going well in life. We're, we're all in when things are kind of working according to plan and the expectations are being met, when our standards are being met, our reasonable standards, by the way. When those standards are being met because we're reasonable people, but when things turn sideways or we're met with disappointment, many times what happens is it reveals what our hearts are linked to, what we're sinking our hearts into. And I've discovered that disappointments in life can very quickly identify where my heart is centered, what it's centered in. And when that thing shifts and moves, I shift and move with it because my heart isn't designed to root itself in that thing that's always shifting and moving. It's designed to root itself in something that can't change, can't move, because everything around me is moving and shifting. Now, there's beauty in children. There's beauty in the gift. 
There's beauty in realizing that this is a gift that's been given to me, that I give my affection and my heart to this thing that's been given to me. But when that thing becomes the center of your joy, can it hold? Can it hold your affection? Can it hold your fixation? Can it hold your human heart? And what Abraham and Sarah are doing is they're taking their hope and I think they're sinking it into Isaac. Now, that's a lot of weight to put on a child, wouldn't you say? It's not fair to the child to sink all of our hope. And if anything threatens that hope, that laughter can quickly turn into anger, rage, fixation, because things will turn sideways. Now, when I look at the first kind of laughter, the laughter of sarcasm and scoffing as a way of avoiding uh, hope, I think, we were, we're afraid to hope. And then the second kind of laughter as the laughter of, of fixation or addiction, I think both are actually ways of avoiding rest. They're, they're just practices to avoid rest because we don't want to sink our heart into something. So we laugh at it or we scoff or we turn into cynics. And then Genesis 18. Look on the back of your sheet. Genesis 18, verse 9 through 15. God is having a discussion with Sarah Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yeah, you did laugh. How's that for a compelling text? (laughs) Sarah laughed. Kind of this, uh, you know, the laughter that's marked by this? Give me a break. You know that kind of laughter, like, like, <laughs> give me a break. And it's the undercurrent. It's the thing going on under the laughter. And, and God asks Sarah a question. Sarah, why did you laugh? And Sarah's like us. She got scared and said, I didn't laugh. And God said, yeah, you did. And it goes on the record. Now, thousands of years later, we get told this story about how a woman's laughter, she was laughing at God. And for generation after generation after generation, we get to tell the same story. How would you feel if your worst moment was written down for all of history to look at? (laughs) The humiliation, Sarah's laughter, Sarah's miscue, her lack of trust. How do you feel when your record goes on a permanent story and that your greatest moment of weakness is laid out for everyone to see? Humiliation. Sarah's laughing. God asked her a question, Sarah, why did you laugh? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And God says, yes, you did. End of discussion. Now, does God ask questions because he's looking for information? Or does God ask questions because he's trying to get to the root of what's really going on? Again, God's pursuing. I don't think God, I I don't believe that God is shaming her or going after her to humiliate her. I think he's trying to get to the root of what's really going on so that he can heal her. So God's going to the heart of this woman. And in Genesis 18, verse 14, I love this. It says, is is anything too hard for the Lord? 
And another translation says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And I love that word, wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Isaac's born to a 90-year-old woman, a woman who is marked as a scoffer, marked as a scoffer. And I wonder what this story was preparing us for in the future. Was it preparing us for something, opening us up to the possibilities that maybe this God actually does things so miraculous that we could hardly believe that God could come through even in this situation of our life? And stories, I think, have a way of opening us up and inviting us to step deeper into hope. When I hear stories about how people were faithful or how they trusted even in the most dire of circumstances, that does something to my faith. So when I hear stories and I hear hope rising up in God's people, there's something inside of me that comes alive. I'm like, oh my gosh, you really believe this stuff. That, like this, this hope is deep inside of you. That inspires me when I hear that kind of hope rising up in person. And then when I look at this story, I think thousands of years later, there was another child of promise that came to a woman in an impossible situation. And two parents lost their reputation for this child of promise to come into the world. And they gave of themselves. And an angel of the Lord appeared to this teenage girl named Mary. And there's a proclamation that this angel says, nothing is too wonderful for God. A completion. Nothing is too wonderful for our God. The child of promise, Jesus, comes into the world and is in the midst of redeeming the entire cosmos. All that we see in the bigger story is happening. Now, we could walk away from here this morning and think, man, I've, I believe that. I've got all my beliefs kind of in the right category and we've got our beliefs all lined up. But I'm afraid sometimes what we tend to do is we tend to rest in our beliefs and we don't know how to rejoice in the one that we're believing in. So we've got all, everything kind of lined up in control. We rest in our right beliefs but I think we need to learn how to rest and rejoice in the one we're believing in, taking it even deeper. This child of promise that comes thousands of years later, I believe is the child that will bring you the kind of laughter that can never be silenced inside of your human heart. Because there's lots of sarcastic laughter in our world. There's lots of, of cynical laughter, scoffing kind of laughter that happens in our society. But I'm afraid what's happening is that we're losing our wonder. We're, we're losing our imagination. We're losing the spectacular idea, the concept that this child of promise came into the world through an seemingly impossible situation and is now redeeming all things. Even our stories are being redeemed through this child. And what catches me is that the name Isaac actually means laughter. And this child was given to a woman who was marked by scoffing. And God says, okay, you're, you're scoffing, you're giving yourself over to fixation and addiction, I'm gonna give you the gift of laughter and I'm going to name the child Isaac, which means laughter. It's interesting. She's marked by this part of her story, all her failures, her mistakes, all her missteps are laid out so that we all get to read it and feel better about ourselves. But then God takes that and redeems that by giving her the gift of a child whose very name means laughter. And he takes her story and he starts to turn it into gold, which is exactly what Christ does 
in us. He takes our stories and begins to weave them together and turns them into gold. He takes our failures and he turns them into humility. He takes our mistakes and he can turn them into compassion so that we're not defined by our failures or we're not defined by our successes, but that our failures, our successes, all the missteps and the miscues, things that have gone on our record are actually becoming wisdom in us. So that when others make mistakes or misstep or they miss the mark in life, we're not the first in line to throw stones at them or to judge them because we understand that many times when we're judging other people, I think what we're doing is we're tending to judge things that we fear may be true of us. So we have to crank it back and think about all the missteps and the failures and places where we've missed it in life and that my failures don't define me and my successes don't define me either. And in reality, friends, any success that we've ever had in life really has come through other people, hasn't it? It's really not been just about you. It's been the people around you that have helped to cultivate those kinds of things in your life. I think in Christ, we can truly experience the kind of laughter that we were created to experience. In Christ, I believe nothing can wipe that smile off your face, kind of that deep smile inside of your soul that somehow in Christ, no matter what happens in life, no matter what I'm sinking my hope into, and that shifts, nothing can take away this deep smile that's kind of rooted deep down in my soul. Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 2, look at it. It says, listen to me. Listen. You who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. Sarah's laughter turned into joy. It turned into a deep kind of rejoicing because of the son of promise. There was a son of promise who was born into our world, and that son of promise was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And the invitation for us this morning is that when you take your life and you place it in the hands of Jesus, you begin to wake up and you begin to experience a deep kind of joy. So if you're here this morning and you've never said yes to that invitation to follow Jesus, I invite you simply this morning to say yes. I want to say yes to the son of promise. I want to place my hope and sink it deep into the heart of Jesus and begin to experience the deep kind of smile that can only come in Christ Jesus. We get to go to the table this morning and experience communion as a way of beginning Advent. And communion is a, a way of saying yes to Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and, and you have said yes to Jesus for the first time, I invite you to come down, partake of communion. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice. Thank you for uh, your life-giving promise, the joy that you give us, the smile that you create deep down in our very hearts. For those of you this morning who aren't ready to say yes to Jesus, I invite you simply to come forward for a blessing. If you want to pass, that's okay. But this is for those who have said yes to Jesus, those who say, I've surrendered and I give everything to Christ. He is worthy of my heart and my soul. So when you're ready, come forward, 
Jane and I will be walking around the room. For those of you who are unable to partake, you uh, will come to you, okay? I need two volunteers on this side of the room to serve over here to my left and your right. Two willing volunteers, go. And the people, no takers? Oh, Tyler Watson, Diana, perfect. No, don't fight ladies, it's okay. And then over here on this side, if I could have two, thank you, Dave. One more, great. So Jesus, before we come and we partake of the bread and the cup, we pause for a moment and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to reveal the Isaacs in our life. Places where we're sinking our hope into. Reveal what those things are. And we ask you, Jesus, to move into those spaces where we're clinging onto things, hoping too deeply in the things that can't meet us and give us absolutely what we need. So reveal that to us, be gracious to us, be merciful, and reveal those things in us. And Jesus, invite us into deeper trust, to sink our hope into you, the child of promise, the one who will bring that infinite smile into the depths of our soul. Help us to root ourselves in that, that which is most real, most true, most good. So Holy Spirit, you lead now. Direct us as we come to the table, acknowledging our need of you. In Jesus' name, amen.